Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host, Brady Josephson, and today we are talking with David Burkus. He's one of the most forward-thinking idea guys in the world of business, where his best-selling books are helping change how companies approach innovation, collaboration, and productivity. His work and writing has been featured in places like Harvard Business Review, US Today, Fast Company, and more. And specifically today, well, we talk about a lot of things, but we talk about his new book, Friend of a Friend, which is really about networking. But he unpacks what networking really is, uh, talk about the role of social media today and what networking, uh, what that means for networking talk about things like shared activities and how that can actually um, better network us with people. Things like taking an open posture uh, increases your chances of networking and getting to the right person that you are trying to network with. So he kind of uncovers some tips and tactics around networking that his book and research covers. We also spend some time talking about things like creativity and innovation and some of his other work and research and books. So it's a pretty far-ranging conversation, but it's a really great conversation and one that I am sure you will enjoy. So So thank you, as always, for listening, and enjoy the pod. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. I said, welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Hi, David. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I want to talk about your new book, Friend of a Friend. But uh, before we get there, I actually started following you and your work because of a previous book, Myths of Creativity. So I'm interested to know kind of your process behind how do you determine what subject or what book to write? Because I'm sure there's overlap, but they're also seemingly fairly different. Yeah, I wish there was a systematic uh, method or, <laughs> or something like that. I I often joke that I think I just have intellectual ADHD. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I my background, I I grew up wanting to be a, a writer. When you're a teenager and a, and a undergrad university student, you think that means fiction. Gradually, I started reading more and more kind of narrative nonfiction, and then uh, like. Um, science writers like the Gladwell, like Gladwell, Chip and Dan Heath, those sort of authors and, and found it fascinating that you could blend storytelling, science and, and takeaways, although Gladwell never really has mm-hmm. takeaways and actually do something that helps people. I also noticed that those authors tend to have a better time eating than do the novelists and that sort of thing. Right. Um, so then it was a matter of just trying to learn the science and that's where I got kind of just went all over the place. It was sort of like, if it's, if it explains human behavior, I'm interested. So that was everything from leadership and management, creativity, networking, etc. Um, some of it was just because of what, based on my experience and based on my uh, research, I was ready to write. Hmm. And then I would be lying if I didn't say that uh, my first book came out when I was 29 years old. And there are very few topics that middle managers to senior leaders will read a book from a 29-year-old on. Hmm. Uh, creativity, unfortunately, is one of those topics. So that was <laughs> that was some of the, the strategic region too. But really, I mean, I was just fascinated with... Um, what changes and what a lot of misconceptions are about how creativity is supposed to work in teams. Um, and that if there's any, any sort of through line through all of these different books, it's that idea of the science of human behavior can clear up a lot of misconceptions that unfortunately we're still operating under. And we need to change if we're going to do our best work. 
Awesome. Well, and I think that's actually a great through line even into, um, you know, like kind of the work that, that we do is really trying to be more forensic in terms of decoding philanthropy or giving, because not a lot has been done to truly understand why people actually give. And if we don't understand at a much deeper level, then how do you replicate success? And it's got to be the same in human interactions and business, right? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, every every large organization suffers from this sort of best practices uh, myopia, right? Because best practices is code for what was working five years ago and generated a lot of publicity. <laughs> and then everybody tries to copy it. And of course, it doesn't work because you're not, A, you're not them, but B, that's not what's sort of that cutting edge. And, and so exactly what you said, de- deconstructing the reasons it worked and then building a new thing based on those strategies that works a whole lot better yeah well and off air there we were just talking about you know charity water because he's scott harrison's featured in your book and i think that's a great example of people you know five six eight years after are trying to copy without actually understanding some of the things that make scott and charity water truly unique and successful you can't just copy what they do and assume that you'll be successful yeah there's a lot of what you can't copy but you also need to understand the things that actually made them successful so yeah yeah just 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 having some coders develop a way that you can donate your birthday through the website is not exactly gonna (laughs) generate the millions of dollars that you think it's gonna generate exactly correct correct yeah it's kind of like a a running joke now and uh uh, when everyone says like, you know, well, charity water, well, charity water, because it was for so long, it was like the shining star example. And they do some unbelievable things. But again, we need to decode and understand to replicate. Yeah. When I'll tell you, I mean, the, the, the dirty little secret, it's not really dirty and it's not really a secret, but knowing Scott now for a number of years and becoming friends with him, he, he will tell you in terms of best practices, he was looking at tech companies the whole time. He mm-hmm. wasn't looking at other philanthropy companies trying to figure it all out by copying those best practices. He was looking at companies in, a t- in entirely different industries and saying, these are the people we need to emulate and then do it in a way that's unique to our DNA. Um, that Again, that's sort of what works. And, and ironically, we, I talk about that some in Friend of a Friend. I talk about it in Miss of Creativity too, that idea that ideas aren't original. Most of these groundbreaking things are migrations from a different industry. So if you're not studying other industries, you're in trouble. Um, and if you're only studying your industry five years ago, you're in trouble. Yeah. And I was going to, I was going to make that connection to your book for you, but you did it anyways, which is great. <laughs> but it, it's, it's actually, uh, I mean, it's a huge part of our business where we basically took methodology from a company called Mech Labs that did re- really rigorous marketing research. And we just applied it to the nonprofit space. And when we do our conference, we go to all these tech conferences that are really cool. And we just apply it to the nonprofit space, yeah. right? And then we actually teach and train a lot. I actually spoke at our conference last year about innovation and how associating is a massive missing piece of saying, why don't we go to real estate conventions and see how they're driving leads? You know, Why don't we go to these seemingly disconnected, disparate industries? But if all we do is go to nonprofit conferences, well, no wonder generosity and giving is not growing because we just all hear the same stuff over and over again. So we all do the same things over and over again. And hope that it works. Like we have to have this ability to, you know, connect dots outside of our areas and spheres. Yeah, yeah. And I and I wish, um, I wish I could say, well, I wish your industry wasn't that way. But I also wish it wasn't unique. Um, but mm. pretty much every industry that I've worked with, that that you know, it's funny. They almost always, uh, from a missive creativity side, say, "Can you come over with us? We want our people to have more great ideas." I'm like, well. They do. They're just, there's something about your culture that's not comfortable them bringing up, hey, you know what? I saw this on a documentary about 
this industry last night. And I, right. and I made me think of it. They don't feel comfortable sharing that, which is a huge problem. It may be a network issue. We can talk about that in that they're not going to those conferences, but a lot of them are, they just don't feel like they'll be taken seriously if they try and migrate an idea from a different domain over to, to them. Yeah, no, and that's a massive piece. And, and it's actually kind of a piece of my story actually about, you know, I was a national marketing director and I was, you know, mid late twenties and just kind of like, this is great, but, and I love these organizations, but I can't do the things that I really want to do. I can't bring in these ideas that I have. They just kept kind of getting shut down at various ladders above. And that's actually, I think one of the biggest reasons why, why we lose talent period, right. Is that people can't tap into the skills and ideas that they have. So they feel like they need to go somewhere else. And if they can't do it there, they go somewhere else. So they start their own thing. And if there's a way to harness that within our organizations, maybe we can do more innovative, cool things, or at least keep talent around. No. Yeah. Yeah. And a a lot of that, a lot of that comes with how, how leaders especially respond to, Mm. I, I won't even say great ideas, respond to any ideas, right? Your, your response sets the tone for whether or not you'll get more, idea sharing in the future, right? Most of us, you know, we, we, somebody shares an idea and in that we, we judge it right away, which Mm -hmm. is fine. We all all humans judge it. The problem is we then verbalize our judgment (laughs) and we talk about how it'll never work in this industry or it's too similar to that thing we tried a couple years ago, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And in reality, like, and I stole this from Roger Martin, who's an intellectual hero of mine. Um, in reality, the usually the right question to respond to when you get a an idea from one of your people is what would have to be true for this idea mm. to work, right? Mm-hmm. Or if you do have concerns, you can say something like, "That's it, you know, that's really interesting, and I think it has potential. How would you solve the problem of X?" And right. then there's your objection, which is the same thing, but it's not a rejection. It's just a yeah, I believe in this idea, but we need to we need to think it through a little bit more. So go work on that problem and then come back to me. Which again, even if they work on the problem and then they go, oh, you know what? I can't see any way around this. They're not discouraged from suggesting the next idea. They, they feel like you heard them and you invited right. them to try it out and test it. And then the testing is the reason it was rejected. But unfortunately, we don't do that for whatever reason or another. And then I think the other thing leadership does a lot of times is there's that phrase, um, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions. Mm-hmm. But like, first of all, it's literally your job to solve problems. <laughs> That's why we pay you more than the other people. Right. If, if they could solve those problems, we would be paying them and not you, right? right. So that's right. part of it. But also like... Problems are questions and questions are where good ideas come mm-hmm. from. And so if you're saying, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions, you're, you're basically saying, come to me with the same stuff we've already heard. Come to right. me with my ideas repackaged and rephrased so I feel good. You're not saying, come to me with the seeds of new ideas because the seeds of new ideas are problems. Right. No, that's, that's great advice. Um, and Sorry, I mean, I got on a soapbox there. No, this, this is awesome <laughs> because I mean, the, the, the overarching theme of this podcast and the work is really like, how do we innovate in this field of giving and generosity? And actually these things relate. How do we not shut down ideas right away? How do we encourage ideas? And then even how do we take these ideas or questions into like pilot projects or tests, right? Just, yeah. you know what? I think this, I personally don't think this, but you've done the work. There's some research. This seems that why don't we try this idea? Why don't we run this for six months and see? Like that's the other piece that we need to get to is uh, especially when it comes to giving or in other industries, I'm sure too, but it's 
we don't actually know what's going to work or not, especially when it comes to predicting human behavior full stop. Like we're weird people. So like, how yeah. do you know what will actually work? Yeah. One of my, one of my favorite R and D strategies ever for the long time, uh, the company Adobe, the software company, I mean, that they're gigantic, right? And innovation should be hard in gigantic companies because your tests are now multi-million dollar tests instead of, uh, overnight AB testing. But one of the things they did is they took a huge amount of their R and D budget and they, apportioned it in these small things they called kickboxes. Mm. And, and a kickbox was a way to kickstart an idea that you have. It was basically some instructions on how to develop a research question and design a test. And then uh, a Visa gift card for $1,000. I think, I think there was a Starbucks gift card in there too for the caffeine you'll need to do the test. <laughs> and a couple other things designed to help you prototype it. And then $1,000 in funds to, to test it. Hmm. And the only rules, if you requested a, a kickbox, the only rules were you had to share what you learned, positive or negative. Even if you fail, like that's still a result and yeah. you share your result. And so now rather than just one department, the R&D lab spending millions of dollars testing one idea... They had hundreds of people spending thousands of dollars at a thousand dollars at a time testing all of these other ideas, right? And that's a, that's like a small scale way, or it's a large scale way of doing what you were saying in a small scale way, which is your people want to test out these ideas. They don't feel that they have the freedom to. And so just finding ways that you can say, you know what, take for, for the next six weeks, take every Thursday afternoon. We never do meetings on Thursday afternoons. Anyway, take every Thursday afternoon, work on that idea, right? Something like that is enough often to get those most talented people to feel like, oh, they listen to me. I'm going to stick around, right? And you might even stumble into a new way to, to um, spur giving. You might even, a way to be more efficient with the funds that are given, whatever it is, right? Um, you might even stumble into that. And if you don't, you didn't waste that much. I think yeah. we're so afraid yeah, of totally. wasting anything that we don't realize we got to, we do have to waste a teeny bit in order to test out all these ideas, but the discoveries that we make will offset those, which is exactly what Adobe found. Yeah, no, for sure. And there's tons of examples about that. And the thing that we have such a hard time calculating is what's the cost of not testing? What's the cost yeah. of not doing this, right? It's such a, we're getting better at actually being able to predict, especially in the world of digital and analytics and things like that, to actually prove and put number do dollar amounts to like not testing this, right? But but it's the hard thing when someone comes with an idea and you go, oh, you know, that's ah, it's it's fifty grand, it's five grand, that's that's a lot. And then what we end up with is you keep doing the same thing, and for years now you miss out on that opportunity. So like, what's the what's the cost of not doing it? Yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, that's the intro <laughs> to what we're really. <laughs> what we're really here to talk about now that your brain hurts let's yeah. talk some more let's just move on um talking about your latest book friend of a friend and uh it's really about like networking and personal connections so i want to dive into that but maybe before we get into some of what you found and some of you know what you you uncovered in your book and research is networking still useful and it, therefore like why <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, I mean, the short answer is yes. Um, and it always was. The, the problem is that I think networking as a, as a larger activity, right, got shrunk down to mean going to networking events and meeting brand new people, right? Mm -hmm. Like at, at some point, the definition morphed and it became less about how you cultivate community around you and more about how you 
work a room. Hmm. And that makes a lot, that makes, you know, the, the funny thing is since writing the book, I hear from people like, oh, your book helps so much because uh, I'm an introvert and I feel like you spoke to me. You must be an introvert. No, I'm not. I'm a total extrovert. <laughs> but, but the advice that, that people are giving for how to work a room, it makes extroverts feel awkward too. Like it's just bad advice. Right, right, right. right. Um, it's, not, it's not bad. It's, it's just autobiographical. Like it's Mm. exactly on a, on a micro level. It's the same problem we were talking about earlier with best practices. Best uh, advice is, is usually representative of who that person is, their background, their personality, the industry they're in, their past experiences, their current level of power, right? Mm. All of these things factor into the advice that they're giving. And so you go take that advice, you go to that networking mixer thing, which doesn't even work. And we can talk about the research (laughs) on that later. Um, And you go try and apply that advice. And then you say, oh, I feel weird and inauthentic. Well, of course you do. Because you're literally trying to pretend to be that person in the moment. Of course, you're going to feel awkward, right? Right. So there's a whole lot. When we say networking, there's a whole lot more than just trying to meet new connections. I mean, fundamentally to me, networking is about understanding the network that you are already in, who's connected to whom and why, and then Hmm. navigating that network to get the ends that that you desire. And usually you're only going to get those ends if you're serving that network that you're in. So this isn't even an ends justify the means thing. It's all good because the best way to navigate that network is to build what they call social capital, to build value for the people that are around you and trust that that's going to come back to you. Awesome. And I think the stress level perhaps of people who've walked into those mixers and stuff and just like, I hate it so much. I've just gone down a little bit to know, yeah. oh, this is, a, this is not what I maybe think it is. Yeah, if your blood pressure spiked when you heard networking mixer or cocktail party, et cetera, you here, here, this is for you. You don't ever have to go to one of those again. We know from putting like RFID trackers on people in those meetings that most people who go to those meetings just end up talking to people they already know, hmm. which is why you feel like they're a waste of time because they're a waste of time. Now that doesn't mean you're, you're going to take that time saved and just like watch more Amazon prime video, right? (laughs) What it means is that you're going to take that time and you're going to invest in more meaningful things. Like what activities can you be a part of? Um, what can you do to reach back out to weak ties, which is a, it's a fairly well known, but it's still a huge, element of um, network science. What are you going to do to explore the fringes of your network? These are all things that are not meeting total strangers, but are far more effective toward building that social capital that you want to build. So let, let's talk a bit about that, because that was one of the, the things I wanted to, to kind of check in on. It's kind of, you know, what are some of these old school ways or views of networking that you, you talked about and just kind of like are debunked and then maybe more so like what are some of these ideas in terms of um, that you that people listening can take to actually grow their networking in like a positive way. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, specifically in, in this field, right, we think about networking and we do think about meeting strangers because we think about that numbers game thing, mm-hmm. right? We just think about if we, if we make so many new, if we go to so many networking events and I, and I mean, I've, I've talked to people who part of their performance evaluation for the year is how many networking events did you go to? Like, it's just, it's depressing. 
But so that definition of meeting strangers is definitely an old and kind of outdated mentality. Mm -hmm. The best connections that you're going to get are are through, well, they're through friend of a friend. That's why we called the book that, right? And so a much better activity when you're looking to, to meet people is to figure out who's in that sort of warm zone, who's one degree of separation mm-hmm. out. The, the research is actually true. We're about 7.7 billion people on the planet right now. We're all connected by five to six, maybe six and a half if you're in like uh, Madagascar um, or you're trying to get to Madagascar. It can it, Degrees of separation from each other, right? Mm-hmm. So we're actually really, really interconnected. I'm not interested in in all seven degrees of connection, right? Like people always say, oh, you're, you're six handshakes away from the prime minister. I don't want to meet the prime minister. I don't care, right? What I'm fascinated with is that if you do the math, if, if you're six away from 7.7 billion, then you're one away from tens, if not hundreds of millions. Hmm. The likelihood that the people you need to be connected to are in that first degree, those tens of is, is really, really high. And so rather than just trying to run around and meet total strangers, what I encourage people to do is try and do that one degree of separation out. Now, we also, we do this poorly as well. Most of us in a technological era, we just jump on LinkedIn and we search for like CEO of whatever. And then, <laughs> and then LinkedIn shows us that like, oh, you have one mutual connection. So we go to that one person and we beg that person for an introduction. And like, first of all, they may only be connected because they both liked some random video, right? <laughs> right? Like yes. people connect nowadays on social media for different reasons. It doesn't mean they used to work together and they have like a, a big friendship. Yep. They also may not want to recommend you, right? Because every introduction is also a recommendation and they may not want to recommend you or they may not want to recommend that person, right? So there's a lot of reasons that can go wrong. What I teach people to do is if you look at the if you look at the data, an open posture, this is literally in network science is referred to as the problem of search in social networks. And the best tactic is the one that is the most open. So rather than identify a target and try and chase a path, start by as many possible paths as, as you can. So what mm-hmm. I like to say is, who do you know in blank? With blank being the, the, the company you're trying to get connected to, the city, the industry, whatever it is, right? You're trying to get into philanthropy. Who do you know that works in philanthropy? Mm-hmm. You're trying to identify new givers. Who do you know that cares about? I'm going to change in to cares about mm. blank issue, right? Those sort of questions are, are open-ended. So you'll get a lot more names than just one. Most of the time, all of those names are going to be people that that person feels comfortable introducing you to because if they didn't, they just wouldn't have mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. If, if I know, like I have, I will tell you, cause I, I wrote about Scott in the book. We've already talked about it. Scott's a friend. Um, there are people that I don't tell that I know Scott because I know they're going <laughs> to beg me for an introduction and right. I know that I don't want to recommend that, right? That's a, <laughs> it's, again, that's anecdotal experience. It's autobiographical, sure. but I think it's true to most people, right? So when you ask, who do you know in blank, you get a lot of different names. You get hmm. names that people are comfortable referring you to. And bonus points, if you ask this from a lot of different people and the same three or four names keep hmm. popping up, that's a really strong sign that you are going to already click with that person because you already have all of that in common. Um, and you have multiple you have multiple different people. There's a reason for that, right? We're still discovering some of the why behind this, but that's a really strong indicator that you're going to have a meaningful connection with that person. And that is who you want to get connected to. Whether they're a CEO of whatever company or not, they're right. probably going to be a more beneficial connection for you. Yeah, that that is awesome. You covered like two of the things that I just wrote down because as you were talking, I just wrote down social because this happened to me maybe two weeks ago where someone contacted me and and like, hey, I saw that you know so-and-so. Can you do an introduction? And I was like, 
I don't even know that. I don't know that person. I don't even yeah. know how we're connected. So like this, this idea, and this is like, um, we don't want to go down this whole rabbit hole of like social connections. Are there real connections, et cetera. Yeah. But that is a flaw of, of that kind of approach is like, yeah, I'm connected to so-and-so, but I don't know who they are at all. So I'm not even your root in <laughs> like, yeah. You know, yeah. It's, I mean, it's one people, of the weird things, uh, people like me ruined LinkedIn. <laughs> um, no, uh, I, I'm, I say that jokingly, but also not like, the thing about every social network, LinkedIn is the primary business one. So this is the reason I'm picking on it. Everybody uses it a little bit differently. Mm. I would say in LinkedIn and specifically 95% of people are using it as sort of a, a source for their, well, actually I should say 60% of people are using it as a, just a random source for their digital resume. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then another, let me do the math. Another 35% who are using it actively are using it to keep in touch with current colleagues, former colleagues, people that are in their vendor network, real people that they know in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are authors and speakers and consultants and people like me that are using it as a content publishing platform, mm-hmm. right? The platform's built for all of those. The, the problem is that LinkedIn's been a little slow. Most of the networks have been a little slow on this content publishing side. Mm. And so I get invitations to connect. And because I don't, like, you can't figure out my home address from connecting with me on LinkedIn. I'm like, sure, I'll be for the worst thing you can do is spam me and then I'll block you. So yes, <laughs> I'll right. accept that. The problem is that now it's like 13,000 connections. So I ruined that service, right? Because if you if you look up somebody, I'm probably going to be a mutual. Con- and then I've got, you know, I've got other people like um, wh- one of my good buddies is six, 600,000 followers on LinkedIn, but he's maxed out of his connections, right? So like he's ruined it too, <laughs> in the sense that it makes it makes you look way closer to those people. And right. what you end up doing half the time is chasing down connections that don't really exist in real life. And the other half of the time, you end up asking people who don't want to vouch for you. So it's a waste of time all of the time. It's, it's much better to take that open posture. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And it, I mean, that's kind of the problem with Facebook, right? Is everyone's, like, oh, yeah, I'll be your friend, friend, friend. And all of a sudden, it's like, where'd my... Where'd my real friends go? And then you oh, create, dude, a, yeah. no, you create I, a shadow account. And <laughs> I, have a, I have a Christmas tradition. I shouldn't probably admit this, but I have a Christmas tradition of Facebook because I'm, I'm at the age when Facebook started, I still had a .edu account, right? Yeah, like I was part too. of that, that crew. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's still very personal to me. It's the only one. But I also have a Christmas tradition of going through the, in the week between Christmas and New Year's. I like put on Die Hard, all of them, because um, they're all good, and the first two are Christmas movies. Um, and going and going through and deciding who I'm going to unfriend, who I'm going to actually follow, who I'm going to unfollow. Like yep. January one, my newsfeed looks totally different every yeah. year because I basically, based on the last year, I may still want to be friends with you, but I don't want to see you post all that stuff. Or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or I don't remember who you are. <laughs> you know what I mean? So. Um, so one thing every, that I, every other one I'm, I'm wide open on, but yeah, that one in particular is uh, you end up with that exact thing: connect, 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 and then yeah, unless you unless you develop a habit like that, you're like, shoot, I'm right, I'm over connected. Yeah. Well, so here, here's a free one for you to try. I haven't done it, but I would love to see someone do it, like an unfriending party where you do that, but with colleagues and friends. But then you go around the circle, and then when it's your time, you have to tell the story or like why you're unfriending that person. <laughs> <laughs> that could be that could be a little mean. I mean, it, it might be. That's, I like it. That's the I like downside, it. especially throwing I like a few, it. My, my friend, few my friend Clay did this. Um, did this 365 days to appear newsfeed cleanse. Where basically <laughs> on your birthday, he decided right because it always pops up. Oh it's yeah, five right. people's birthday today, and he'd be like, 
huh, I only want to be connected to one of them. The other four are like, happy birthday. We're not friends anymore. <laughs> and and I feel bad saying that, but the truth is like friend doesn't mean anything. Just like on LinkedIn, connection, connection right. doesn't mean anything. Like my when I was writing Friend of a Friend, for example, my editor pushed me for, oh, we need a chapter about social networks. We need a chapter about online. And, and I kept pushing back. No, we don't. Yeah. Because like everything online, if, if for, for 95% of people, unless you're in that sort of like content publishing world, everything about your online social network should be a supplement to, not a replacement for your offline network, right? Mm -hmm. It should be a way that you keep in touch with weak and dormant ties so that you can be better connected to them. But it shouldn't be a way that you just start following random people on Instagram because they put the right filter on their yeah. photo. Like that's not what these tools are best used for. Yeah. And, and the, so then the parallels to fundraising, because this happens all the time is same thing. Like for email fundraising, for example, all of our research suggests the more <clears throat> like human looking sounding feeling your emails are, the more likely you are to get engagement clicks, donations. Yeah, I believe. Right. It. But as soon as you kind of step outside of this, like, oh, emailing my aunt or my friend. And then you think I'm just going to send out this blast to like numbers in a database. It all changes. And it's the same thing for social network. Like if you wouldn't do that to someone that you know in person, but you would do it to someone, you know, online in these social networks, that's part of the reason why these networks have all these problems is we, it's all rooted in relational dynamics, but they just get like wonked out when we're behind a computer screen or behind our phone for some reason. But the, the basic principles are not that different, right? Yeah. 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 So speaking of, of networking and we've gone on a, a social media side tangent, um, what, and so taking this open posture, that's a great tip, right? Um, what are some other maybe like, are there new types of networking events or things that people are doing or companies are doing or organizations are doing to try to encourage better kind of quality networking? Yeah, I don't I don't know how much of this is intentional and how much of it is um unintentional but people tend to flock to these types of events. So so one of the things I found that was really interesting in the data, okay, open-ended networking mixers don't work. What actually does work, mm. right? Are there gatherings because for some reason people are still paying thousands of dollars to go to conferences and gather why? Right. Yeah, right. And, and what we find is that those unstructured events are used to reconnect with weak ties. They're the equivalent of like the on offline version of just a giant social media thing there. You can catch up with anybody, et cetera. And, and I don't want to say you should never go to a networking mixer because those sort of open-ended things at a conference are a great opportunity to reach back out to those people you haven't talked to in six months, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't feel pressure to work the room and try and meet as many new people as possible because right. most people aren't going to do that anyway. Yeah. But you can still use those effectively. In terms of meeting new people, what we find is that if you look at the research, what are, what are Brian, the researchers Brian Uzi and Sharon Dunlop called these shared activities. These are very specific types of activities that draw people together to connect um, differently and, and better. And a shared activity has to meet their qualifications has very specific rules. So it has to be an activity where there is a purpose for getting there other than just connecting with people. Mm -hmm. In other words, there is something we are here to do, right? So like my friend, John Levy runs these great ones that are dinner parties where you cook your dinner right? With him. So it's not a dinner party. It's a cooking party. And we just happen to eat afterwards, mm -hmm. right? Um, because everybody's there to do something else, even though it's small, right. they end up having all these different conversations than they would if there was just wine and cheese and let's wait for DoorDash to deliver our takeout, right? Mm -hmm, right. Um, you see the same thing truthfully with things like um, 
organizing charity runs. Mm-hmm. Habitat for Humanity does an amazing job drawing people together. There's a there's a bigger reason we're there, right? right? right, right, right. And so you're starting to see. Uh, conferences for the longest time would do this. I mean, mostly they would do it with like golf, right? Just because it was a male-dominated thing. Most of the industries were male-dominated, et cetera, and everybody loves golf or loves beer carts, one or the other. (laughs) Um, But now they're taking – now, thankfully, because of increased diversity, but also like um, less people – pretending to like golf, they're starting to organize more in different types of events. So I go to a conference every year that literally one whole afternoon is dedicated to sign up and there's like six different options, right? Um, and because you're there for some other reason to connect, first of all, you have, you, you automatically have something else in common beyond just your job title, right? You both love that activity. So you showed up or you're at least interested in that yeah, activity, yeah. right? Sure. You're also more likely to drop your script, your, who are you and what do you do and all mm, of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's a reason other than there that now shared activities have a couple other rules. Those the, the reason or achieving that reason requires interdependence, meaning you can't just do it alone, mm. right? So, um, you know, let, let's all right. just get together and watch a movie. No, that's not a shared activity. It has to be together. Um, so you have to require interdependence because that's what gets people together. John Levy, when he does the dinner parties, for example, he pairs people off and assigns them tasks. So every task has to be done in at least a pair, if not a triplet, right? right. And then the last thing it requires is there has to be stakes, there has to be, if we don't actually achieve the objective, hmm. then um, something bad will happen, right? Now, in John, like the dinner party case, like you could burn the chicken, right? That's not, it's not very big stakes, right? You can obviously think of something like Habitat for Humanity. There are big stakes, right? Um, but there, So there has to be some reason to get people to want to continue to be interdependent and achieve that objective. When that happens... Um, you end up meeting people that are very different from you because what you have in common isn't your job title or your power or your background or whatever. It's that interest in that thing. You end up having conversations you wouldn't have otherwise, partly because you have to talk in order to achieve the objective, but also while you're doing that objective, you're talking about a whole Mm -hmm. range of stuff. Um, And you end up, uh, the stakes thing makes you better connected afterwards because you share this sense of accomplishment with someone, Mm -hmm. um, which, which makes you a little bit more, um, emotionally connected to yeah. them as well, right? Now, to, to me, this is actually, so I read this and like I already threw out Habitat for Humanity. To me, I think this is a, a really cool um, thing that a lot of uh, nonprofits, philanthropic organizations should play around with because yeah. I mean, what's the old model, right? Like the gala. Well, the gala, I mean, I literally just today, I got an invitation. Hey, we're going to this foundation event. Do you want to sit at our table? Like that's the traditional, that's right. the only way you could bring new people in. <laughs> right. Which is essentially like, Hey, do you want to go, do you want to, do you want to dress up in clothes you don't like wearing um, because they're dress clothes and go to this hotel ballroom and eat a dry chicken and get pressure to donate at the end. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, sure. That sounds like exactly, <laughs> no, it doesn't. Right. When you pitch it if, like that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> if I really care about the issue, sure. Like, yeah, I'll, I, I want to go. Or, or if I manage to achieve some level of like inroads into the socialite community, maybe I'll go, right? But I think there are other, other ways we could think about how our organization could design a shared activity where there's something we are doing. Yeah. They could leverage that Habitat for Humanity model, but with something else. Um, I, you know, another great example is that, uh, that group team in training that mm-hmm. will help you train for a triathlon if you agree to raise money for... I forget which um, cancer society while you're doing it, right? Another great example of there's another thing we're doing here. We're training for a triathlon. And that is the reason we're inviting people in, 
right. and we end up, you know, so those things, not only do they make for better networking on a personal level, I think if, as we think about the way we leverage our existing fans, our existing champions, our existing advocates yeah. networks, um, I think those shared activities are going to be the key, not these unstructured events. Yeah. So many cool things in there, but like one of the <laughs> fundamental, you know, principles of marketing, but also fundraising is how do you deliver value to your customer or to your donor? And one of the things is like connection, meaning. And one thing that we undervalue to your point is actually like connection to each other. So people who volunteer are also typically much more likely to give and give a lot more on average and over their mm-hmm. lifetime. And we typically equate that because, you know, they, they get more insider access. They are actually more involved. And I think there's an element of that, which is true. But the element that we maybe discount is they also meet other people that yeah. they, you know, do this volunteer work with kind of week in and week out. And especially as I'm getting older, the natural points and places in my life where I meet friends is going down and down and down. Yeah. So if I actually meet a unique friend that I volunteer with every Monday or something like that, and we're creating meals together for someone with some steaks, like it's a yeah. shared activity and that's a real relationship and you know who benefits from that the organization because they've helped facilitate that connection so i think that's a a huge you're right area and opportunity for for causes and organizations yeah the the last chapter of friend of a friend has a story of my friend whitney johnson who is a a, another uh, another content producer writer type of person like myself but for the longest time she was an investment analyst with um smith barney first and then somewhere else i forget and then she ended up having the opportunity to partner with Clay Christensen of disruptive innovation fame, mm-hmm. mega professor Clay, Clay Christensen, right? Clay hired her to be the president of his new, they basically started a private equity fund where they would look for potentially disruptively innovative companies and invest in them, et cetera. And he hired Whitney, not because of any of her investment analyst background or anything like that, but because Whitney was the head of a committee at their church that was basically how can we as a church partner with the broader business community in the city of Boston, right? Mm -hmm. So Clay got to see her leadership skills in a totally different area than we traditionally think about. Um, But it literally wouldn't have happened had they not worked with that particular organization. Um, You know, it's, it's up to you and your own sort of unique uh, company co- organizational culture and your donor sort of I don't, donor DNA for lack of a better term mm-hmm. to see how you would phrase that right like hey come with us because you'll get a promotion <laughs> probably doesn't work right um, but there are definitely ways where you can emphasize that it's not just about giving it's also about the community or, around that giving that's I think this I think that's mo- that's true for more organizations than it's not true for. Yeah. And I think there's some that really do that. And there's probably some that just say that because they think it sounds good. But you you have to follow through then. If you, oh, we're creating this community of, and there's no community or connection, then it's actually, you know, possibly hurting because you're not actually following through on these connections and community that you've promised people. Right. Or if the community, uh, the only reason they get together is to talk about how amazing you are as an organization. (laughs) That's that's not very helpful. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Well, and when you were saying that too, I was thinking, I have a friend who's going through the Alt MBA with, uh, Seth Godin's yeah, program yeah, yeah. and was just thinking like that's actually brilliant networking that's not why people do it right but that's a part of it and because they have these shared activities their stakes they've paid money they want to learn they have to work alongside these people they have some similar shared values otherwise they wouldn't be taking this course and so the end of it you actually walk out with you know lessons learned but I'm sure much more valuable 
networks than you could ever get from just trying to like stalk LinkedIn or things like that. That's yeah. really interesting. That shared network. I mean, or from taking the exact same courses, but in different format, right? Like one of the things that Seth built was a, you know, you got to publish and you got to share it with people and you have to critique other people's work as you're going through it. It's not like your typical online course is watch these three hours of videos in five minute chunks. And at the end, you'll know how to do this skill, which is great for if, if I, if I want to learn how to use a new software program, like I'm buying that. Right. Um, but what Seth built is it's a, it's a broader course material and it allowed for that. And that hmm. then allowed for, uh, we're going to force those collisions. I mean, and this is, I think it was huge that he built that because this is the number one thing. I mean, I, I spoke at, um, I spoke at Wharton's executive MBA program at the end of last year. Some actually, no, it was sometime in the fall. Um, and I'm standing in this room and there are, there are 200 people who are, or their companies are paying $200,000 to be here. And every single one of them could buy the textbooks online, right? Like, or could listen to the same professors give lectures on YouTube, right? Right. right. Why are they there? Well, they're there because in-person education still beats all of that. But Mm -hmm. mostly they're there because of the other 200 people in the the Mm -hmm. room, right? Um, they're there to do that shared activity. They're going to get paired up on teams, which will require that sort of interdependence thing Mm. because they're project teams. Um, They're there specifically specifically to meet those people, but to meet them through doing, which is why they're paying a premium. If you ask those same group of people, hey, if I tried to recruit all 200 of them to go to a totally free happy hour right right (laughs) Right. next door from the campus, they wouldn't come. Yeah. Right. Because there isn't an other reason to be there. Yeah. But once you have the reason to be there, then you can build a system that requires interdependence that has stakes, whether it's an alt MBA or traditional MBA or, mm. or whatever works for your organization, you can totally do it. Oh, it's awesome. Now, now I'm just like rethinking our online courses and all these events that we do. I'm just like, oh no, <laughs> how, do <we> do that? <laughs> how do we do this? <laughs> um, so you've already laid out like tons of different you know, research and tips, but uh, I want to be respectful of your time and get you on, on the rest of your day. Do you have any other like kind of last tips maybe for people listening about what you've uncovered in networking and things they should think about or do? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the biggest one, and this is actually the chapter that the Whitney Johnson story is in, the Clay Christensen story is in, um, is this phenomenon networks called multiplexity, which is to say that when we we used to draw up all these network diagrams, I say we, I wasn't alive when this happened. <laughs> um, we used to map out networks of organizations or of communities. We just use a single line to connect whether or not people knew each other. And then we started to realize we had to take into account the different ways in which people know each other, the different mm-hmm. contexts for connection. Mm-hmm. And that then led to this whole area of research known as multiplexity, which is the studying how many different ways people could be connected to each other. If mm-hmm. you're, if you just know somebody from work or you just know them from like your kids go to the same school, just one reason they would call that a uniplex tie. And then they studied these people who had multiplex ties, multiple different things in common, multiple Hmm. different ways that they knew each other or saw each other as they went throughout their day or their week. Um, And we know that you build a better relationship faster with multiplexity. But the interesting thing is like the Whitney Johnson example, things migrate. We have Hmm. this tendency to put people in buckets. You're in my business bucket because I work in the same industry or you're a church friend or your kids go to the same, we're on the PTA. So you're in my PTA bucket. Uh, And that's not how humans actually work right? We just know each other. We're all, there's a reason it's called friend of a friend and not colleague of a colleague, right? (laughs) We're all just friends. We're all just connected. And when you see that, you open the door to connections you never would have thought 
possible. And I, I think we do the same thing. Like even if you're I, between like prospects for giving and other people who help, et cetera, we, we, we put people in these buckets that the research just doesn't support it that way. Yeah. Um, the way to get out of that, by the way, isn't just to say, okay, from now on, I won't put people in buckets. It's to take a legitimate interest in multiple different areas of people's mm. lives, right? So when we meet people, we say stuff like, oh, so what do you do, right? It's our default question a lot of times in North America, at least. Um, and instead, we should be asking, I mean, you can ask that question if you want, but be ready with a different question about a different area of their life. Take a genuine interest in, in multiple different ways and better things will happen. Humans are multifaceted creatures. And so if you're trying to connect with them, be multifaceted in the different aspects of their life, not just one. Yeah, no, that's great. What, what would be another question, by the way, just because... Uh, uh, yeah. So if you want to put it in the show notes, I've got this great article called Eight Questions to Ask Other Than So What Do You Do? But you can ask about um, hobbies. You can ask about background. I like to ask people where they grew up a lot of times. Hmm. If I sense that they're a little nerdy, my favorite question actually is to ask is, who's your favorite superhero? Hmm. Um, it's because especially in an age of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe taking over <laughs> right. the world, like everybody's got a favorite superhero. Yeah. Um, and a story behind how that one became their favorite superhero, which is really, really cool. Yeah, right. Um, or there, there's a small percentage of people who don't, um, who hate superheroes and find the <laughs> whole thing nerdy and dumb. They still have a story behind how they came out, right? So there's, yeah, there's yeah. still like a way that you can use that question to ask a bunch of different um, fascinating things. So there's, there's that. Cool. I like to ask people what are they excited about sometimes just because that can be a work thing. It can be a non-work thing. Yeah prospective, it's optimistic, um, whichever one feels well. But yeah, there's, there's a bunch of different non-work questions you can ask. Awesome. Uh, who's your favorite superhero? Batman. Easy. Okay. Oh yeah, totally. And, I mean, so part of, part of this is story certain, now. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I'm going right into it. Oh. <laughs> part, of, part of this is circumstantial. Cause I was a kid when the new adventures or like Batman, the animated series was on, mm. you know, WB or whatever afternoon. <laughs> Um, but some of his, I, what I like about him and, you know, and Iron Man is basically the same character if you're a Marvel fan. Um, what I like about them is they're not super, right? They weren't bit by a radioactive spider. They're right. not secretly a space alien, right? They're just somebody who, who A, saw a problem and needed to fix it, who had resources and felt that with those resources became obligation. Hmm. Um, they got crazy good at martial arts. Well, Batman did, Iron Man didn't, um, which is kind of cool, right? <laughs> right. But that idea that they're sort of not super, and so it's, I think it's more empowering to believe in superheroes who aren't super, yeah. right? Um, totally. So, yeah, that's good. why Batman. Great, great answer, great answer. Well, we'll be sure to send out that, that link to that article as well. In addition to some other resources whoa, like... Whoa, 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 who is your favorite superhero? Well, I was just thinking about that, and it's, it's such a... Um, it's such like a, a random a random shout, but like Daredevil. Okay. The, like yeah. the, the the terrible Ben Affleck movie that was made Daredevil. <laughs> oh. Um I, I, I mean got, the, the new Netflix series is pretty good. I ha- okay, I haven't seen it, which is my if it's my favorite superhero, I should. Um but that's probably what I would answer. And it was just a very unique time when I got real into X-Men and there was something where like I grew up in a very like safe place, safe neighborhood, safe like rural area, and I think there was something about Daredevil A in terms of like he lost all these senses and was wicked good at martial arts, but also like the exotic risk factor to him just really like connected with 10 year old Brady. So I don't know. I guess you put me on the spot and that's what I would say. I might revise it, but uh, that's what I'll go with for now. All right. Makes sense. So we'll send out the link to that article, but um, a few other links that we want to include, like where can people find out more about you, your work and your book? 
Yeah, um, I'm really lucky. I've got a really weird last name. So davidberkus.com is open. Um, B-U-R-K-U-S. That's probably the single best place because there's a ton of different resources on there. Um, whether you buy the book or not, you can just download them. That also links to all of the socials. Um, as much as I we were dissing it earlier, <laughs> I actually really enjoy the the conversation that's happening on LinkedIn between people who are there to, to now con- sort of consume content and people like myself who are out there putting out videos and that sort of thing. That's how we met too, isn't it? Yeah, Twitter and LinkedIn. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, so there you go. Um, so yeah, connect on on um, all of those as well would be awesome. Let's keep the conversation going. Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to send all that out. Thank you so much for A, the work that you're doing, but B, taking the time to share with some of us uh, and those listening some of what you've learned. Appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, cheers. Hi again, this is Brady, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to listen to all future episodes or maybe go back and listen to some of our past episodes, you can do so by going to generosityfreakshow.com, or you can search The Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, pretty much wherever you listen to your pods. And uh, if you have any questions or a suggested guest, or maybe you yourself would like to come on the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at podcast at nextafter.com that's podcast at nextafter.com and if you want to find out more about this vision to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world and what we're doing at next after in terms of research resources and training you can find out more at nextafter.com that's nextafter.com thank you very much for listening and finally i have to say thank you to nathan hill our producer and mixologist this would not be possible without him so thank you nathan and thank you once again for listening 